Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. This episode is brought to you by none other than Blinkist. Blinkist is an app which takes the key ideas and insights from over 4,000 non-fiction bestsellers in more than 27 categories and gathers them together in 15-minute text and audio explainers that help you understand more about the core ideas of the book. It is perfect for those who want to cheat at their book clubs and for those who are long on self-development but short on time. The way I use Blinkist is not as a substitute for reading, but as a complement to reading. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the real opportunity cost of reading a book is not the price tag on its cover, it's the hours you pour into reading it, hours which could be spent on a better book or something else entirely. So you want to make sure you're reading the best books in the world. And what I use to screen which books I read is Blinkist, because it gives me an insight into the core thesis of the book. I've recently used Blinkist to screen Matt Iglesias' One Billion Americans and Peter Drucker's The Effective Executive. In this case, I purchased the latter, although I enjoyed blinks of both of those books. If you want to get 25% off an annual subscription and try Blinkist Premium free for seven days, head to Blinkist.com swagman where you can take advantage of this exclusive offer. That is Blinkist.com swagman. You're listening to the Jolly Swagman Podcast. Here's your host, Joe Walker. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, swagmen and swagettes, welcome back to the show. If you're new to the show, welcome in particular. Do make sure you follow or subscribe to the show, depending on which podcast app you use, to make sure you never miss an episode. We try to release on a weekly basis, although we have been a bit all over the place recently. Our guest for this episode is Martha Olney. Martha is a teaching professor at the University of California, Berkeley, where she is a star having won many awards for her teaching. Martha co-authored economics textbooks with Paul Krugman, and she's a leading expert on the history of consumer credit. Her 1991 book, Buy Now, Pay Later, investigates the birth of consumer credit in the 1920s, and it is the topic of this conversation. So without much further ado, Please enjoy this chat with the great Martha Olney. Martha Olney, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. It's so great to meet you, Martha. I originally came across your work via Amir Sufi, who is, I guess, a pen pal of mine who uh, has been on the podcast before um, when he was visiting Sydney at the end of 2019. And your book, Buy Now, Pay Later, subtitled Advertising Credit and Consumer Durables in the 1920s, is fascinating to me because it really ex explains the crucial turning point in the history of consumer credit. And that investigation is never more relevant than in this present moment because, as you well know, Martha, household debt has taken an ever-increasingly important role in macroeconomic cycles. So, it's going to be fascinating to kind of return to the 1920s to where it all began. And perhaps we could begin by you telling me how you became interested in consumer credit in the 1920s. Oh, that's an interesting question. Thank you. Um, so I started on this work when I was in graduate school and uh, a couple of things came together. One was I was... I knew I was interested in the Great Depression in the 1920s and the 1930s, and that had a lot to do with my family history. Um, my parents started 
high school in 1929. They graduated in 1933. Um, and so they were in high school during the, the worst of the Great Depression. And so I grew up with stories about what life was like uh, during the 1930s. And I think that that always was in my head as to, to something that that held my interest. And then when I was trying to find a thesis topic, uh, to be honest, my thesis advisor said, go get Gary Walton's economic history textbook and read through the chapter on the Great Depression uh, and read the chapter on the 1920s and the chapter on the Great Depression and find a paragraph that you want to change. And so that's what I did. Uh, was I went through the, the textbook and I read through it and I found, oh, here's this comment that he makes about consumer spending in the 1920s. And I thought, I wonder if that's actually true. And so that was one of the things that got me started. Uh, and so I started by looking at consumer spending for durable goods uh, in the 1920s and talking about what was called the consumer durables revolution. And what I brought to the table that had not been there before was the consideration of both advertising and the role of consumer credit and the confluence of those two things uh, in boosting the consumer demand for durable goods starting in the 1920s. So what was the offending paragraph that you picked up on originally? Oh, heavens. You know, it's been 40 years. I don't remember. Um, I think it was just, <laughs> I think it probably was, was I may actually still have the, the old, old, old version here. I'm not sure. Uh, I suspect it was just that there was a comment about uh, consumer spending without a lot of fleshing out. Uh, and that I was interested in seeing what was really going on. One of the things that, that, we knew when I was doing my work based on the work of Peter Temin. Uh, Peter Temin had had studied the Great Depression, uh, and in his book that was published in uh, I believe like 1976, um, uh, he pointed out that there had been a drop in consumer spending in the 1930s that was not explained by income and wealth effects, uh, and so this had um, intrigued me, and. Uh, my thesis advisor, Richard Such, was very keen on, you know, if you want to study the 1930s, you really have to understand the 1920s. And so he was the person who pushed me to look at the decade before the 30s to see what the antecedents were for this drop in consumer spending. And that's what got me to consumer durables, got me to credit, uh, and ultimately got me to my story, uh, which I fervently believe, uh, about the role of, of consumer credit in the drop in consumption in the 1930s. Yeah, which is a crucial part of the story and, and something which recurred during the Great Recession of the 2000s. Let's let's talk about the consumer credit part and then we can talk about advertising afterwards. Sure. So the personal savings rate for the United States fell from 7.1% between 1898 and 1916 to 4.4% from 1922 to 1929. And I'm curious to hear you trace the contours of consumer credit through that period. And, and if you could just maybe firstly define what some of the common consumer durables included in that period and then how consumer credit took on an increasingly important role. So uh, it, before the 1920s, um, the common consumer durables were furniture and household appliances, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, jewelry, um, books, uh, carpets, uh, um, pianos. Pianos were very important. Um, and then, of course, starting... Those are key. Pardon me? 
sorry, I said those are key. It was a terrible pun. Okay. Um, oh, key. Sorry. You know what it was? It was the Australian key became K, and I was Kai. Kai. <laughs> it was K. It was Kai. Um, so, okay. Got it. We're good. I, I tried to moderate my accent. I'm sorry. N- n- don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> Please we continue. Had, Ignore me. I, that's okay. A funny story. We traveled to Australia, oh gosh, about 15 years ago now. And we went to um, Uluru and did the camel ride at yep. dawn at Uluru. And uh, the guy who was explaining how to get on the camel um, spoke perfect Australian English, um, which I... Um, Alas, I was the first person to get on the camel, and I could not understand a word that he had said about how to do it properly. And so I damn near died because I about I fell halfway off the camel, and they had to push me back up on the camel because I was sort of hanging off by one leg um, off the camel because I had not understood he had where he had said. And because then once they pushed me back up, he looked at everybody else and he says, now, as I said, when you get on the camel, and then he repeated what he'd said. And it's like, oh, now I understand what he said. <laughs> I had not done it, but it's okay. <laughs> um, anyway, yes, the piano was key. I got it. Um, back to where we were. The, the key durable goods before the automobile, uh, appliances, pianos, furniture, and so on. And then the automobile, uh, which in the United States starts in, somewhat in the 19-teens uh, and really takes off in the 1920s. Um, and then the, the role of consumer credit in, in, I, I, I loved my story about the camel so much. I lost track of the the question. So those were the consumer durables, but then how did consumer credit increase? Okay. What were the, the, you know, the magnitudes involved? What was the percentage increase roughly speaking? Uh, so the, the increase in, in credit, uh, the use of credit uh, just about doubles uh, over the, the 1920s period. And I want to make sure that we distinguish between consumer credit and, and mortgage credit. So typically when we talk about consumer credit, we're talking about the non-mortgage debt. So debt for buying cars and, and appliances and furniture and, and so on. And then, of course, later, starting in the 1940s, late 40s and into the 50s, we would add in their credit card debt uh, as well. Um, and, and the, the debt to income ratio, I'm looking at it. I don't have this on the top of my head, but I'm on my computer so I can look at a chart. Uh, the, the non-mortgage debt to income ratio, uh, doubles between the 1920s, uh, the beginning and the end of the 1920s. And so it's, uh, down around 5%, uh, in 1920, uh, and about 10% by, by 1929. So there's this very, very rapid increase in the use of debt. Most of the consumer credit that was being issued in the 1920s was installment credit, uh, and it did not come from banks. So in in the United States, uh, the 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 banks were not terribly interested in making loans to consumers. Uh, it was pretty much an attitude that if you were a consumer and you needed to borrow to buy something. Didn't that in and of itself demonstrate that you were not a financially uh, sound person uh, and therefore not someone that a a smart lender would want to lend to? Uh, And so most of the installment debt came through what were called sales finance companies. in, uh, in England, and I suspect also in Australia, they refer to it as higher purchase, H-I-R-E, so higher purchase, um, and, and in the U.S. it would be called installment credit. But those are the same, for whatever reason, two different names for the same thing. 
Um, and so what would happen is if you went down to buy, say, an automobile, uh, you would uh, sign a contract that was a commitment to pay to the sales finance company regular monthly payments. Uh, uh, and at the end of the contract, you would own the car. So similar to today, right? When you buy a car, you don't actually own the car until you pay it off. Um, but the credit was not coming from a bank. It was coming from this independent company. Now, some of the earliest sales finance companies were established by the manufacturers themselves. So for instance, General Motors established GMAC, the General Motors Acceptance Corporation, uh, and that was established in 1919. It was a separate corporate arm. And the reason it was separate was because in the financial markets, uh, the the assets that were held by the General Motors Acceptance Corporation, GMAC, were very, very liquid because they were these contracts for buying a car. Most of them had a 12 to an 18-month maturity. As opposed to General Motors, whose assets were very illiquid, they were the huge plants uh, and the factories where the automobiles were being manufactured, and so they could get much more favorable terms on the very liquid assets that were the sales finance contracts than they could on the manufacturing facilities. Uh, and so they had these as two separate corporate arms of the General Motors family. Uh, and so GMAC is the sales finance company. They called it a tied, T-I-E-D, a tied sales finance company because it was tied to the manufacturer. And so a dealer uh, who was trying to sell you a car. The dealer, you would go in, you'd say, I want to buy this car. They'd say, can you pay cash? You would say, eh, not so much. And the dealer would say, no, no problem. We have a deal for you. Uh, and would offer you this sales finance contract. Uh, and you would, you probably thought it was a loan, but legally it was not. So it was not a loan of money. It was a legal contract for you to pay for a good over a 12 or an 18 month period. Um, the the sales finance companies, because they were tied to the manufacturers, were very invested in boosting the sales of the goods, right? They all were, both the manufacturer and the sales finance company had the same goal, which is to maximize the sales, uh, maximize the profit, but maximize the sales uh, of General Motors. Um, so that was how it, how it started. Uh, there was a lot of profit to be made, and so there were a lot of independent sales finance companies uh, that also came on the scene in the 1920s. And so by the end of the 1920s, you have a small handful of these tied sales finance companies uh, and a lot of small independent sales finance, finance companies that were trying to break into the market. And do you have a sense as to whether this story was true in other Western nations during the 1920s? Um, I, I have seen similar research on the UK, so particularly, I think, England, Scotland, Wales, um, uh, and, and certainly saw the same thing there. Um, and I suspect also in Canada, but to tell you the truth, I don't remember if I've seen research on Canada. Mm -hmm. And so if we think about household debt in a broad sense, it wasn't just consumer credit that was increasing, you know, for things like furniture and, and rugs and items like that. It was also mortgage credit as well mm -hmm. for homes. I think this is, this is an overlooked aspect of that period of the roaring 20s leading into the Great Depression, that there were potentially a serial, arguably a series of real estate 
bubbles occurring around the United States. Not just the now very well covered Florida land bubble, but the flat craze in Chicago, you know, most of Manhattan's skyline was was built during that period. Yeah. Um, I know this isn't sort of directly within the scope of the research that you originally undertook, Martha, but do you have any insights into to mortgage credit during that period? Um, I have to say not as much. So I haven't really done done as much. I haven't done any research on, on the mortgage credit side. Uh, so I could only tell you what I know from having listened to other people's papers and because it's not my heart sure. and soul, um, not so much. Now, was the change in consumer demand an autonomous one or was it orchestrated by the efforts of consumer credit companies and advertisers? So so that was the, the question I addressed in my thesis. Uh, and and the argument that I made and the conclusion I came to was that the, the shift in consumer demand for durable goods was driven by the, the availability of credit uh, and the advertising of both of the goods, but also of the availability of credit. Uh, there was a larger increase in purchases of durable goods, not just automobiles, but but all durable goods um, in the 1920s than you would expect based on the patterns of income and wealth. What were the, some of the common forms or some classic examples of that advertising? Uh, so the a lot of the work that I did on the advertising side was I looked at print advertising uh, and I looked at national print advertising. So um, you would have had in the the radio comes along around 1923, um, and so you would have had some of the advertisements on on radio, um, but a lot of the advertising in that age was was print advertising. Um, there's a wonderful book um, by a historian who's passed away um, named um, Roland Marchand, and he wrote a book called Making Way for Modernity. I believe, but I'd have to put the phone down and look at the bookshelf behind me to make sure I got the title right. Um, and it was essentially a, it's a historian, but it was really an art historian's eye looking at advertisements. And it's all about this period, 1920 to 1940. It's a fascinating book. Um, and looking at the way in which the, the advertisements and particularly the artwork and the advertisements, um, uh, created, supported, sustained a cultural shift uh, in the society uh, in the 1920s and the 1930s. So advertising, advertising in the United States really changes with World War I. And what the, before World War I, you had in business schools, you had the beginnings of the marriage of psychology and advertising. So if you dial back, to, say, to like 1902 or something, uh, advertising was all about providing information. And if you look at advertisements from the earliest part of the 20th century, they are, today we would say they're like eight point, six point font, um, packed with information, uh, no, no pictures, uh, and... Um, just lots and lots of information. And, and the idea was, you know, give the consumer lots of information and they'll buy the product. Then you get, starting around 1905, 6, 7, 8, um, the beginnings of this movement of teaching psychology in the, the business programs. Uh, um, I don't, there weren't business schools per se at the time, but in the courses where they were starting to talk about 
uh, marketing and, and so on. When the psychologists got to advertising, um, what they said is, look, advertising needs to not be this information-based advertising. It needs to appeal to emotions. And so you'd get textbook after textbook published 1912, 1913, 1914. And the textbooks, would each one of them would have a list in it of what were the 10 top desires of humans uh, and to be loved, uh, to feel warmth, to be fed. And they would have these lists of things that were the top 10 desires. And then they would talk about how advertising had to appeal to these desires. And so that movement of psychology into advertising had started, so sort of the birth of Madison Avenue had started before World War I. Yeah, so, you know, business people were a little bit skeptical. They weren't so sure this made a lot of sense. And then the war starts and the United States needs to sell a lot of bonds, uh, a, a lot of liberty bonds and ultimately a lot of victory bonds. Uh, they need to get people to stop eating meat and to to switch over to uh, other other foods. They need people to change um how they're using uh, agricultural products so that those things can be used for the, the soldiers and so on. And so they, the, the United States government undertakes this propaganda campaign to get people to change their consumer habits and to buy the Liberty Bonds, and they use these principles of modern advertising. And so you have these fabulous posters, and if I was in my office, which as I said, I can't get into until July because of COVID, um, I have posters all around my my office uh, that I got from the, um, the gift shop at the National Archives that are these posters uh, that were produced by the United States government well, for the United States government uh, in World War I to promote the sales of, of bonds and, and so on. And that was seen as a wildly successful, <clears throat> excuse me, that was seen as a wildly successful campaign. And so the doubts that businesses had had about this move to emotion-based advertising basically disappeared with World War I because they were shown with the advertising from World War I that you could appeal to emotion and that an appeal to emotion could change behavior. So then at the end of World War I, what are all these advertisers going to do? Well, they turn, they turn their skills towards promoting the sales of consumer goods. And so uh, in the work that I did for the book, I looked at in particular, I looked at advertisements in Ladies' Home Journal. So I looked at uh, every October issue of Ladies' Home Journal. It was a, a very popular women's magazine in the United States. Um, and uh, looked at every October issue from 1900 to 1940. Uh, and I looked at every single advertisement and I cataloged it and, and what were they advertising and what was the appeal and how big was it and were there photographs and were they advertising the, the, the credit terms and, and so on. Uh, and and you could just watch the the move away from the information base to the emotion base, the move uh, into electrical appliances and pushing people to use electricity, uh, the move into automobiles and how an automobile will bring happiness and joy and love um, uh, to your life. Uh, and then there would be down at the bottom uh, credit terms available, GMAC financing available, easy credit um, would be part of these advertisements. How incredible. So I have three reactions to that. The first one is obviously this is occurring in a period where we're seeing the dawn of a lot of what Robert Gordon 
Robert Gordon calls the great inventions, like the the, f- the last fruits of the second industrial revolution. Mm-hmm. Um, and it you know it must have it must have been an incredible period to be alive. Like on um, dad's side of the family, both my grandparents were born in 1919, and I often think about how that first 50 years of their life from you know like 1920 through to 1970 were one of the most amazing periods to be alive in in human history the changes that that occurred during their lifetimes um but that was really the beginning of a lot of those inventions um coming through not least of all the the automobile and um radio Mm -hmm. as you mentioned martha um second reaction is it sounds like advertising you know, the science of advertising took a great step forward in focusing more on emotion than information. But from the vantage point of 2020, that <laughs> still seems like a primitive approach to advertising because I think the tactics that a lot of advertisers use today are not changing people's emotion in order to change their behavior, but trying to change people's behavior in order to create a particular emotion. So they'll get you to express your commitment or to act in a certain way in regards to whatever product they're trying to sell and once you've taken that action you then shift your emotions in order to be congruent with whatever it is you've done a similar sort of psychology to the psychological warfare that chinese practiced on u.s soldiers in prisoner of war camps where they'd have them write like essays um disavowing United States and democratic capitalism mm-hmm. and, and writing nice things about communism. So it was there in their own handwriting. Once you've like taken something, a very tangible course of action, um, your, your emotions start to slowly come in line with that. Don't know if you have any, any reactions well, on, th- on that. And maybe I'm yeah. not accurately summarizing I, the approach to advertising in the 1920s. But Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, the idea is, uh, and this is where I was, uh, where Marchand's book was just um, uh, such a powerful book for me when I read it. Um, the, the notion was, buy this car and it will bring you joy. So I think that it really was, you know, change change the behavior, which is to say, buy this car, uh, and 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 if you take this action, I don't know if change behavior, but take this action, buy the car, um, and mm. and and these emotions will follow. And I just I always remember this this one photograph that was in Marchand's book where there was a, a radio, that, you know, the radios of the 1920s were these, you know, four foot tall. Um, uh, pieces of, of furniture that were in the, the living room and the family seated around the, the radio in a circle and, and Marshawn talking about how they were showing this, the radio as completing the family circle, that in the absence of the radio, it would be an open circle and, and but the radio completes the family mm-hmm. circle and, and creates this, this, this love and, and fulfillment. Uh, and so they're trying to get the action, which is to have you go buy a, a radio uh, in order to experience that emotion of now the family will gather around and we will have this joyful time and even the recalcitrant teenager will be there with a smile on his face as we listen to the radio on Saturday Saturday night. Got it. I guess I'm talking about something slightly different. So the change of behavior I'm talking about wouldn't be buying the car. That's sort of like the ultimate goal. 
it'd be some kind of like intermediate step like here sit in the car here are the keys take it for a drive around the block making someone comfortable with the car making them feel like they already own it but i suppose maybe maybe Salespeople did do that. I'm sure they did do that in the 1920s. They're not like mutually exclusive. Um, <laughs> yeah. Those those approaches. My my third reaction is, so advertisers became a lot more perceptive perceptive about using emotion to sell particular products, but did they ever need to use emotion to make people feel more comfortable with credit specifically? Was that a hurdle that people needed to overcome in terms of cultural attitudes? There, there, <clears throat> there certainly was a cultural shift from everything I've read and understand. There was a, an enormous cultural shift in uh, attitudes towards credit in the 1920s. Now, I, I didn't see the advertisements used as a way of saying it's okay to use credit. But, but at the... Mm-hmm. the beginning of the 20s, the late teens, um, there was still this sense that the people who used credit were people who couldn't manage their family finances in order to buy the goods that they wanted. And so the use of credit was something that you were ashamed about, um, that you didn't want your neighbors to know that you were using credit, uh, because it indicated Mm -hmm. that that you just, you, you know, if you had made better choices, you would have been able to go out and buy this thing. Uh, and not buy it on credit. And by the end of the 1920s, uh, thus the title of my book, Buy Now, Pay Later, by the end of the, the 1920s, um, the attitude is why only a fool would wait. You can have the car now, you can go in and buy the car and drive it off the lot, and then you can pay for it over the next 12 months. <clears throat> why would you postpone having this, this wonderful experience of owning an automobile um, in order to save up money? Uh, now the 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 question of how so how that happen um it mm. it it was not this is one of the things i was looking for with the book was i was looking for were there advertisements that were saying it's cool to borrow and i didn't see that kind of thing in the advertisements i you know i saw the mention of credit and i saw the easy credit terms and and uh that sort of a thing but there wasn't a a direct pitch to say, oh, you used to think this was a bad thing to do and you were ashamed, but no, you shouldn't be anymore. Instead, it was it was something that was sort of somehow through the culture and through through popular writings, through fiction, um, uh, and in that kind of a way. And and um, there was there's a quote that I have in the book that I. I borrowed from someone else and I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have it on the top of my head to give the, the name right now um, that just goes through the a series of quotes from the 1920s about how the attitudes changed um, toward credit and where it went over a, a short decade, went from something that uh, you would be somewhat ashamed to use because it indicated you weren't a very good financial manager to something you were, um, proud to use because it indicated that you um, were interested in putting, well, in enjoying life. The roaring 20s. Exactly. <laughs> so the there's another structural The skirts shift. got shorter and the skirts got shorter <laughs> and the music changed and people borrowed money. It's all there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The, the trifecta. Um, there's another big structural shift that I'm 
interested in, and that is inequality and the extent to which it's related to this boom in consumer credit. So at least according to Walter Scheidel, the, the high point of inequality in the US was 1929, yeah. um, and, and it was increasing throughout the 1920s. What is the nexus between this increase in consumer credit and inequality in the 1920s? Um, I, 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 my, I'm looking at a, oh, I'm on radio. I was going to show you a picture on my wall of an advertisement, um, that is for the 1933 Packard. Uh, and, and one of the things that a lot of these advertisements were doing, um, was, sorry, Martha, did you say the 1933 Packard? Yeah. What, what's the Packard? Oh, we're not very cultured in... It's a type of car. doesn't exist anymore. Oh, right. Yeah. Sorry. So it's okay. So yeah. this is wow. an ad for a 1933 Packard. Um, and, yeah. and, and the advertisement... I don't know if you can see it. Nobody else but you and me can see it. But, um, but the advertisement is... We can is, put a photo up on my website. Oh, okay. I can take a picture and send it to you. Um, the advertisement you. Is, is using the, the photograph um, as a way of, of saying... It's almost like saying you can be one of these rich people. Look, just buy this car and oh. you will have this this life like this rich person. And then at the same time, here's an ad from 1933 for a 1933 Oldsmobile. Now I'm taking everything off my walls to show you for a 1933 Oldsmobile. And again, you get this. So it's uh, the the century of progress and modern and so on. But but the the image that they're portraying is that you're going to be able to buy this car and you're going to be able to take, Ooh, gosh, sorry. Just pulled my ear things out of my ear. Uh, you're going to be able to buy this car and you're going to be able to partake of this world that you can only dream of with all of these rich people and these people in these fancy cars and the women in their long gowns and their furs. And, and it says the new Oldsmobile in front of science hall at the Ch Chicago exposition. Um, Wow. So. So yeah. So there was. Uh, um, so back to the question. Um, yes, the height of inequality and what's the role of consumer durables? Is is it's a way for people who are not the rich to own the same things that the rich people were owning. So it's like we're going to yeah. have this wide inequality, but we're going to pretend. Uh, that in a sense we don't, because you too can own the same things that are being owned by the rich mm. and famous. Which makes sense if we go back to the absolute roots of human evolutionary psychology. It's not just absolute consumption that matters, but also relative status. Right. I find this so interesting because of the parallels to the modern era. Raghuram Rajan talks about the, the let them eat credit view of the US housing bubble, which is that since the 1970s, the median income for US workers has been stagnating or, or declining for, you know, for unskilled and manufacturing workers. Yep. Yep. And so the political economy response was, well, in order to allow people to keep enjoying and keep consuming the only other thing we can do is is let them eat credit like <laughs> ease um 
ease access to to consumer credit and to mortgage credit. Um, and I wonder whether some there was a similar dynamic happening during the nineteen twenties because inequality is increasing. The rich have a lower marginal propensity to consume than the poor. Yep. So all of that money is pulling up in savings. And how do they get a return on that? Well, they can do it through credit um, and through loaning it out to the poor who then can try and keep up in this this losing race of, of conspicuous consumption by, by borrowing that money. Theoretically, yes. Um, mm-hmm. in, I, would, but. I would, well, the but. The but is I would want to, um, I would want to look actually at the portfolios of the rich people and see whether or not that stands up. And the, certainly the returns on consumer finance were high. So the, um, I calculated that for one contract I was able to find in the files, um, the effective interest rate was 35%, and that was not unusual. Um, they, had, <clears throat> they had very high down payments, typically one-fourth to one-third down payments, but very short terms, 12, 12 months. Uh, and and they did not have the understanding of interest that we have today. And so they would do things like right. say, we're going to assess a 6% interest on the amount you borrow. So you'd borrow $1,000 and they would just tack $60 on to that, um, even though you paid, off, paid it off over time. Um, and so it winds up being a lot more than 6% when you, when you do out the math. Um, the, what I don't know is I don't know who owned the... I, I don't know if the ownership of the sales finance companies that were making these profits on the consumer sales finance, on the sales finance contracts, <clears throat> I don't know if the owners... who I don't know how widely owned those sales finance companies were. Right. Um and and I just don't know. I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting question. Mm. You know, it's also the time when the the Small Loan Act is is in 1916. The Uniform Small Loan Act is 1916, and that's an effort to try to regulate what today we would call payday lending. So the the small loan lenders who were uh, making cash loans of of a couple of hundred dollars um, through the Morris Plan uh, and and others. Um, and that was seen as the Uniform Small Loan Act was partly seen as being part of the progressive era and um, uh, you know let's take care of these these poor people who can't take care of themselves kind of attitude. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was more of that paternalistic attitude uh, and less mm-hmm. of the capitalist exploitive attitude towards those people who were borrowing. I don't, I don't think, you know, maybe I, I could be wrong, but I would be surprised to see that in the 20s. Because, and part of the reason is that people don't believe that consumer credit is, um, is, a, good de- is a good financial investment until after 1933. Because what happens is that, that and this is the later part of the story in terms of getting us to the Great Depression, is that 
you know, there were a lot of tisk tisk tiskers who were very worried about the run up of of consumer non mortgage debt, so the installment credit. And they were convinced that people having all of this installment credit was going to lead to the collapse of the economy uh, because all of these people were indebted and they were going to default on all of these debts and that was going to lead to the collapse of the, the American economy. Well, no, that's not what happens. What happens is you get into the Great Depression and you get much lower default rates. <clears throat> Excuse me. You get much lower default rates on, for, for instance, the auto loans uh, than than you would have predicted so that the uh, let me see if I can pull some numbers up here and and um, the the unemployment rate goes from two percent to three percent in 1929 to 25 percent in 1933. So that that increases tenfold, and the repossession rate goes from uh, just under five percent uh, to on so on new cars the repossession rate. Let me do that one. The repossession rate goes from also from three percent to five and a half percent. So unemployment goes from three to twenty-five, and the repossession rate goes on new cars goes from three to five. So mm. and and what the foreclosures on on mortgages were much greater than the foreclosures on cars. And so mm. this experience uh, during the Great Depression of the extraordinarily low. Uh, repossession rate on these automobiles, that was the piece that convinced people that consumer credit was a good financial investment. So that convinced the people who would be funding the credit that this was something they should look at. The banks were not interested in this at all. And that's why the tides, the, the fact that the sales finance companies were tied to the manufacturer was important because everybody actually saw it as this is going to be a losing proposition, but General Motors is going to do it because this is how they're going to sell their cars. And it turns out that, well, actually, to tell you the truth, the, the sales finance part winds up being the really profitable part because people make sure they make those payments. Now, the the story that I tell, I shouldn't say story because it makes it sound like it's not like legit research, but the argument I would put forth um, uh, is, <laughs> thank you, um, <laughs> is that um, the contracts, these installment contracts that were signed in 1929, 1930, 31, 32, um, those contracts were, were based on or written in the language that the contracts had been written throughout the 1920s, where the assumption was, uh, if you're a borrower and you're going to take out one of the installment contracts and then you're not going to pay, we need to be really harsh with you, the borrower who doesn't pay. Because the reason you're not paying is because you're some sort of a cheat. And we don't like cheats. And so we're going to have these really harsh terms so that you have every incentive to make these payments. And so the terms were that if you failed to make the payments on your contract and you didn't, you know, you didn't fulfill the contract to buy the car, they would repossess the car and then they would sell the car and any equity that you had built up in the car, they would keep. Now, today you're like, who cares, right? Well, that, that's because today yeah. we go in and we buy a car with no down payment and we get a seven-year loan. They were going in and buying a car with a one-third down payment and getting a 12-month loan. And so everybody had equity in the car. And so they knew that if they didn't make the payments, the car would be repossessed and they would lose the money that they had put into the car so far. And so there's this big financial incentive to make the payments. And so this is actually, here we get to the story about what happens in the Great Depression. The, you asked me earlier about the shift in consumer spending 
for consumer durable goods. And that was and the argument I make is that the, the increase in demand for durables was a result of the consumer credit and the advertising um, shifting demand above what you would expect given income and wealth. But then what happens in the 1930s? What happens in the 1930s is that we see a drop in consumer spending that we can't explain with income and wealth. And that was the thing that Temin had, had pointed out initially that had started my whole like life of examining this thing. And, and my argument is, well, what happens is people face either they actually are laid off or all you really need for this to happen is people get worried that they might be laid off or there were lots and lots of, of workers that were experiencing 10% wage cuts. So you get one of these 10% wage cuts and you still want to make the payments on your car. Well, if you're still going to make the payments on your car when you've had your wages cut 10%, you're going to have to cut back everywhere else. So you're not going to buy as much food. You're not going to buy the clothing. You're not going to buy the shoes. Uh, uh, today, we would say you're not going to go out to eat, right? People didn't eat in restaurants as much then as we do now, but you're not going to go out to eat. You're going to have spaghetti. You're not going to have the, the more expensive meats. And that's exactly what people did in the 1930s. So they did not default on their cars. They paid off the car loans, but they cut back on every other part of consumption they could, and that dropped the consumption spending, and that's what shot the unemployment up uh, in, in mm. 1930. So it's really the, the very harsh penalty for defaulting um, that leads people not to default in 1929, 30, 31, 32, 33, uh, which unfortunately, causes consumption spending to fall, uh, and which changes the attitude of the investors towards these sales finance contracts. Because now it's like, oh, oh, consumer credit is not only high interest rate, it's low risk. This is a win, right? So they had thought it was high interest rate because it was high risk. It turns out it's high interest rate and low risk. Um, that turns out to be a pretty good thing. Now, at the same time, what's happening over here on the legal end is uh, those penalties where they took away what was called the surplus, so they took away any equity you'd built up in the car, those penalties were perceived as being punitive, highly punitive. And so there was a series of court cases uh, in, in which uh, uh, individuals who has, had had their automobiles repossessed took the finance companies to court and sued uh, on the grounds that these were punitive, excessively punitive penalties, remedies in the legal term. And they won. And they won here, and they won there, and they won there. These are state cases. It's not federal law. It's state law, so it has to be settled in a state-by-state -state basis. Uh, but consistently, the courts were ruling that uh, people who were default, people who could not make these payments through, quote, no fault of their own because they had lost their jobs, should not be secondly penalized through these very harsh uh, default penalties. Uh, and that the the pattern of keeping the surplus, so retaining the equity, uh, needed to stop. Uh, and so it should be less expensive for individuals to default on these contracts uh, and um, uh, less punitive. Right? Because it wasn't that they were scofflaws, it's that they were out of luck. They got They lost their job. So then the economy has this double dip, right? So we get a second recession in the United States. We get a second recession, 37, 38, uh, before we had fully recovered from the first recession. And in the second recession, the repossession rates go way up because no longer do you have an in as much incentive to make sure that you pay off the car. Um, you, 
you're not going to lose as much. And so there's less incentive to pay it off. It's okay. It's, you know, you don't want to lose the car, but you'd rather eat. And the repossession rates go much higher. Do you think the political class and elites more broadly were more willing to redistribute society's resources, more attentive to the little guy during the 1930s than they were in the aftermath of the Great Recession? Certainly what I read in the court cases, the courts certainly were. So the courts um, were were certainly more attentive to the little guy and and not wanting to, to re-penalize people who had lost their jobs. Um, in comparison with the post-2008 crash, um, I think, you know, I, th- I think... I, it's hard to say. I mean, I I feel like post two thousand eight there was a there was such a split, right? There were the the people who um, who saw the people who borrowed as having been greedy, and then there were the people who saw the people who borrowed as having been snookered, um, and mm. um, uh, which I, I kind of I think maps over your political priors pretty well yeah 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 and i mean that that's sort of really how how the tea party movement got started right yeah it was um a reaction to the idea that the the people who got greedy who would then be might then be let off the hook and you know why should we be paying for their mistakes yeah yeah and and Um, it's it, it it's um uh the the way in which the um the real estate the <clears throat> the brokers the the mortgage brokers the way in which the mortgage brokers were were selling the loans to people without fully disclosing the terms and you know in in California we saw a lot of the the really crazy uh terms on some of these loans and and um it, it was such a mix you know it's it's you, you it, it, it wasn't an episode the 2008 it was not an episode that you can characterize in one breath because there were people who were going out there and were flipping houses and they they knew exactly what they were doing and they were borrowing and they were exploiting what was available and they were taking advantage of the system in order to buy houses for cheap and turn them and flip them and and make boatloads of money um and then there were people who uh were fulfilling their lifelong dream of owning their own home uh, and those are two those are two different groups of people who had two different sets of experiences um and mm. and so i don 't think we can say you know oh yeah, they were all a bunch of people who were who should have just paid their debts or oh yeah, they were all a bunch of people who were were taken advantage of i think it it 's a both and and not an either or mm. i agree and i um I would try to extract myself from the moralizing language of political debate and just think more about what are the underlying structural forces driving this and for whatever reason i'm very attracted to that explanation of of stagnation and slowing growth more rent seeking and rising inequality since the 1970s and then the political economy responses let them eat credit Mm -hmm. I, I find that quite persuasive, and then obviously you layer on all the other proximate causes, mm-hmm. um, and you get you get a big 
credit-driven housing bubble. But just to, to come back to that difference... Oh, sorry. Do you want to react to well, that? Yeah, I was just going to say, I, I think um, in looking... I don't know the data for other countries, but in the United States, looking at the um, the rise of the home equity lines of credit um, and mm-hmm. in terms of let them eat credit um, and... And that was that really starts around 1991, um, the rise of these HELOCs, and um, those. You know, I thought a lot about the work that I had done on the 20s and 30s when that was happening because there were, you know, mm. there were billboards. Every, you know, you drive along, there'd be these huge billboards about how you should go down and, and borrow money. And they'd have, you know, these people who looked sad and these people who looked happy. And the people who looked happy had taken out a HELOC. And, and what were people doing? You know, they were taking out a HELOC and then buying a boat, or they were taking out a HELOC and going to Europe, or they were taking out a HELOC and putting their kid through college, or taking out a HELOC and putting a deck on the back of the house. Um, and and the 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 increase in home equity lines of credit uh, as a share of disposable income um, mirrors the drop in saving in the the 1990s to 2008 period. So that you get this rise of of credit taken out through home equity um, that mm-hmm. compensates for the drop in personal saving. Um, and and people, you know, drove the consumer spending straight up through that use of home equity credit. It's pretty, it was a, um, in the same sense in which you're talking about your grandparents living through the 20s and 30s and me thinking about my parents living through the same period because they were born four years before your grandparents. Um, boy, I tell you, living through the, the 1990 to 2010 period, um, as somebody who pays attention to issues around credit, was an equally like, wow. Wow. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> sort of like how the public health people, <laughs> right? The public health people today are living through this like, whoa, you know, that was, that was for, yeah. for people uh, who think about issues around credit. Um, that was that 20 year period, 1990 to 2010. Yeah. A strange and, and deranged time. And just to <laughs> sort of uh, echo what you said, I, I'm aware of the research by Atif Mean and Amir Sufi, which finds a negative correlation between income growth, mortgage credit expansion in, in yeah. like zip codes around America during a period in the early to mid 2000s, yeah. um, which reinforces that. Just to come back to the response of political elites in the 1930s, my sense is that the memories of the political violence in the 1910s were still fresh. And the political class in the 1930s was much more willing to self-sacrifice and redistribute in order to get the society back on track than was the political class in the aftermath of the Great Recession who was sort of supporting the, the golden handshakes and, and the quantitative easing and the bailing out of the bankers. And it strikes me that mm. the, perhaps the most famous biography of FDR is titled A Traitor to His Class. Mm. Yeah, that. Um, but it's. I mean, it's hard yeah. to quantify that. I am speculating. Yeah. To a great extent. It rings true. So, just looking back on that period of the nineteen twenties, um, what what about that history did you learn that made you well positioned to understand what was happening in the two thousands? 
I guess we've we've touched on some uh, of that already. But yeah. Did you feel like you had a unique insight into what was unfolding? I did, I because I felt like the what I had learned from my study of the twenties and the thirties was that um, people who have people who are indebted are not necessarily going to walk away from that debt, and that. Uh, in my yeah. period, they wanted to keep the car and they were going to keep the car by cutting back on their consumption elsewhere. And I think that what happened in 2008, 9, 7, well, it's really like 2005, 6, 7, 8, um, was, was people didn't want to lose their houses. You know, they, they didn't want to walk away from the house. And this is where this distinction between the, the person who was buying the house to flip it and the person who was buying the house to live in it. The, one who's, the people who were buying those houses to live in the houses, they didn't want to walk away from the house. They, they, were, they were putting down roots in that house. And, um, and so what you saw was, and this is in, in me and in Sufi's work as well, was you saw these, these huge drops in other consumption spending. Um, by the people who were heavily indebted, uh, and and this didn't surprise me. Um, uh, it was it was exactly what I would have predicted. What the, is that that these people were going to do what they could to try to keep their house. Now the challenge was that some of these financial instruments they had were insane. Right, so if you had one of these, uh, they had the the two twenty eights and the three twenty sevens, where you paid principal only for the first two or three years, uh, and then the interest got added on at a market rate instead of the teaser rate that you'd been brought in with. Uh, the the principal got added on, or the, the interest got added on with the the market rate after two or three years, and their payments could easily double, uh, if not more, as a result of this this change of terms. And a lot of because of the way the contracts were written and the disclosures that were provided, people did not know. They were not told your payment is currently $1,400, but at the end of this two-year period, it's going to become $2,987. And so, yeah, you could do the math. You could find an Excel program and figure out how to use Excel and, and put all the numbers in and calculate what the monthly payment was going to be. But it wasn't in the disclosures. And people... Uh, struggled and worked, and a lot of people tried really hard to to hold onto those houses. And the only way to do that was to cut back their spending every place else. Final question, Martha: If private debt is capitalism's Achilles' heel, what <laughs> should we do about it? Oh my goodness! Uh, if private debt is capitalism's Achilles' heel, what should we do about it? Um, I. You know, it's it's interesting to think about that question in the light of the pandemic. And I know, um, you know, the, the way, I think the way that you all, you guys are like back to normal life, I think, for the most part in Australia. Approximately. Yeah, we're not. Yeah. Uh, and, and our governor in California just announced today that we're moving into another shelter in place um, because our, our ICUs are, are full. Uh, and... Um, People went and visited their families for the. We had Thanksgiving holiday, the end of November, and despite all the warnings, people went and visited their families. Um, and and so, I I believe I don't know how strongly do I believe this. I think I believe how is that? I think I believe that coming out of this pandemic and the shelter in place and the change in behaviors. I think there's a chance for a reset. Um, I'm not. 
I'm, my hesitation is, will there be a reset? I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe not. But I think there's a chance for a reset in terms of consumer spending and, and saving and, um, and almost back to what I was saying about how the use of goods and spending to fill emotional needs that part of what, at least here in, in the, the Californian in the Bay area where I live, where, where this, the, the old economic life has really gone away. Um, and you're not going out to eat and you certainly aren't going to the movies. The movie theaters are all closed. Um, so you can't go to the movie theaters. You can't go to the bars. You can't go to the clubs. Um, you can't, you can't get on an airplane and well, you can if if you want to quarantine for 14 days, but you really can't get on an airplane and go and, and make yourself feel better by traveling. Um, and, and people are, because this has lasted, if the shelter in place had lasted six weeks and that had been it, and then we've been able to go back to normal life, I think normal life, everybody would have gone back to the way it was, but we've been in this now eight and a half months, almost nine months. Um, I was last in my office on March 13th and I'm not supposed to be allowed back into my office until July of 2021 at the earliest. Um, and, um, so we've been at this for nine months and, and people are discovering that joy doesn't have to come from goods, that fulfillment doesn't have to come from spending money. Um, and, and, that's not good for the macroeconomy in terms of employment. Um, and this is always the, I mean, this is always the conundrum, right? Is that if if I and, and others decide to cut back on our spending, that may be good for us individually, but it means that people whose who's spending, whose jobs depending upon our spending aren't going to have those jobs anymore. Mm-hmm. So my, my... Fallacy of composition. Yeah. I mean, my, my niece worked for Airbnb. She doesn't work for them anymore. They don't need as many workers. Her husband worked for a caterer. He doesn't work for them anymore because they don't need, they're not catering. Um, and so on the one hand, maybe, who knows, maybe, maybe we're going to see a reset and, and people are going to... Um, find those emotional needs through less spending than they used to. Maybe not. Maybe it's all going to go back to the way it was before March of 2020. Um, and maybe Airbnb will take off again and the catering business will take off again and they'll all get jobs back where they used to have jobs. Um, uh, but it, the credit question is tied up with that, right? Because some of that spending to fulfill those emotional needs was credit financed. Um, Hmm. And uh, it'll be interesting to see the confluence of all of these things. Will indeed. I'm going to be a pessimist and take the other side of that bet and say that given human nature and the need to signal status, conspicuous consumption will be with us for a long time. Yeah, you may be right. We'll see. We shall see. We shall see indeed. Yeah, hopefully sooner rather than later. But yeah. Martha, thank you so much for your time. It's been a great pleasure speaking with you. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. It was really an honor. I appreciate being here. 
thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. For links and notes covering everything we discussed, you will find those on my website, josephnoelwalker.com. That's my full name, J-O-S-E-P-H-N-O-E-L-W-A-L-K-E-R.com. The audio engineer for the Jolly Swagman podcast is Lawrence Moorfield. Our very thirsty video editor is Al Fetty. I'm Joe Walker. Until next time, thank you for listening. Ciao. 